This is Sunday morning worship service here at the Pine Level Pentecostal Ordinance Church with our guest speaker, Reverend Brian Towton, bringing the message today, Do You Believe in Coincidences? We'll start off our service with the Pine Level Pentecostal Ordinance Church praise team and the Pine Level Choir.
while the choir gets set to sing some special music.
and greet somebody this morning. Tell them how good you are. time to continue to worship this morning by giving and blessing the Lord. It is a privilege and an honor to give to the Lord and bless Him this morning, and we thank you for all that you give. And uh, pray with me as we bless this offering that God will bless it, multiply it, and use it to build His kingdom this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to, to give, dear Father. Lord, we ask that you bless each one of the givers, dear Father. Bless them, Lord. Touch them. And even the gift, dear Father. Multiply it, dear Father, to build your kingdom. In thy name we pray. Amen. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I
like to introduce to you this morning uh, brother, reverend, and pastor uh, Brian Talton. He uh, is a man of God and someone that has known Brother Farrell, and Farrell has known him for a long time. He was saved under Pastor Farrell's ministry back at Whitley. I believe it was 2009. It's been a long time ago. And since that time, the Lord has really used him in several ministries. Uh, his heart is with the youth. Uh, uh, he loves doing youth ministry. He'd been a youth pastor before, but also have been in uh, marriage and men's ministry uh, before. Done a lot for the Lord. Still wanting to do a lot more. His heart uh, is prepared and ready. And this morning, we're looking so much forward to hearing you this morning. Thank you for being here. God bless Thank you, my you brother. Me. Thank you. And thank you all for having me. So today, we're going to talk about coincidences. I had to do it, I had to do it. I've wanted to do it since he held them up earlier. And fortunately, you can't see me, so I won't pick on you. So today, we're going to talk about coincidences. Coincidences is a weird word, and it's one that I, I don't, I'm jumping ahead already, and I haven't even started, y'all. So, coincidences is a word that I don't really love to use. Merriam-Webster defines coincidence as the occurrence of events that happen at the same time by accident, but they seem to have a connection. So, do y'all know what I meant by that real long dictionary? Yes, no, maybe. I love some interaction, y'all. I eat it up. I do. Youth pastor and Ron Twist kind of knows what I'm talking about. So I got a few examples. I dug in. I'm like, man, I want to see some really cool examples of coincidence. So I did some digging, y'all. Did some digging. I was playing on the internet. I got off Facebook for a minute and shifted direction. So the relationship between former presidents Thomas Jefferson and John Adams took quite a few twists and turns over the years. These guys started off as allies. Of course, we all know who they are because they're the founding fathers, right? We all know this. Well, they were the last two surviving members of the American Revolutionaries from the British Empire. They eventually reconciled, and they corresponded by letter until their final years. They famously died within hours of one another on the same day in 1826, on the 4th of July. It's crazy. That's crazy. John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln. Y'all know them, right? We all know who they are. They had a family connection long before Booth ever saw Abraham Lincoln. In fact, it was Edwin, which was Booth's brother. He was a famous stage actor, and he supported the Union during the Civil War. He was at a train station in New Jersey. He leaned up on a train, on a train, and he almost fell out off as the train started to move. At this time, Edwin Booth, John's brother, reaches down and grabs Abraham Lincoln's son and saves his life. Years later, of course, we know Booth shot Lincoln, right? Last one, I promise, last one. According to the United States Bureau, Bureau, Bureau of Reclamation, out of the estimated 21,000 people that built the Hoover Dam, there was 96 deaths on this job site. One of the first was J.G. Turney. He and his colleague had drowned on December 20th, 1922. 
They were conducting a geological survey prior to this construction. Fourteen years later, on the exact same day, the very final death at the job site was his son, Patrick Turney. He died, he fell from an electrical tower. Very first, very last at the Hoover Dam. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's absolutely crazy. Anyway, going back to where I started, I, we at my house, we don't really use the term, we don't really use the term coincidence. Because we feel like it more than often, it takes away from what God is doing and the glory that is happening around whatever situation. So, here I am. It is by no nothing but the Lord that I'm standing here in front of you guys today. You would have no idea that in July of 2009, prior to this, my wife grew up with the church. She and her mama, they go back like Moses. You know what I'm saying? Like, with the church, they were there since the beginning. <sighs> no, Tammy, I won't call you Moses. I was calling your mom Moses. God. So, anyway, so in 2009, you know, Mary Catherine's all going to church, and I'm doing everything but going to church. Do y'all know what I'm saying? Anybody have a story like that? I know Ron Twist does, and Stephen Anderson does. I know y'all. Um... So I was doing it. I was living the life. Mary Catherine's like, look, we can be friends, but you need to and have a listen to this sermon. Well, Pastor Farrell was preaching on Jonah. It was um, something to do with running, running away from your calling, running away from the Lord. I didn't know who Jonah was. I can't really tell you I knew who Jesus was, and I sure didn't know that whales ate people. So I listened to this. I was in a tanning bed. I ain't even scared to say. I got saved in a tanning bed on a podcast to what Pastor Farrell was preaching in July of 2009. And stories like that, yeah, it's him. It's not me, I promise. I promise it's not me. And stories like that are the reason that you guys up there that can't see me, that's why you're so important, Joey and Miss Jenny, wherever you're at. Because you're reaching people that would never step foot in a church. I would have never went into a church because I didn't want to catch on fire. <laughs> but anyway, I say all that to say that I don't really think coincidence. I, I, it's, a, it's a word. It's a real word. But I don't believe. I think there's a whole lot more to that than what other people are trying to take away from it. I mean, you're trying to take, people are taking God out of everything. Obviously, they're going to use coincidence as that. Anyway, G.K. Chesterton once observed, coincidences are spiritual puns. So in other words, what some view as coincidence is really God's intervention into our life. So this morning, I pulled out my Bible app because I, you know, I'm on Facebook and I'm like, well, let me read my Bible. Y'all know. So I pull it out. I am currently walking through 100 days in the Old Testament. At the end of this, I will have read everything in the Old Testament. I haven't read it in two days because I've been prepping for this. So I opened it up this morning. The very, second, the very first verse in 2 Samuel 23-2, and that, this is completely off subject. The Lord was there. 2 Samuel 23-2 of the ESV says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. 
the morning I read this, I'm going to preach at Pine Level Pentecostal Holiness Church. And then I get this word saying, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Guys, wow, that, that is not coincidence. I don't give a rip what you tell me. There ain't no coincidence right there. Because, see, I've done this, like Brother Mac said, I've been a youth pastor for a long time. I've spoken in front of a lot of people. I don't really have an issue speaking in front of people, but the weight that comes with this responsibility is a lot. It's a lot of pressure, and it's one that I don't take lightly. And I, and I kind of hope I never do, because once you can get up and start doing something on your own, you, don't, you just kind of start taking it for granted, don't you? You know, it's kind of like grandma making a banana pudding. I mean, grandmother can whip a banana pudding up. She ain't got to think twice about it. I hope I never get to that point. But I say all that to say, I mean, that's not coincidence that the Lord dropped that in my lap this morning. There is no way. Um, a divine appointment is a meeting with another person that has been specifically and unmistakably ordered by God. And yet I sometimes wonder how many of these supernaturally spirited scheduled meetings do we miss because it's not on our radar. You see, we live in a culture where we are highly focused on the next best thing. We focus on the best way to organize our closets. My wife doesn't, but some people do. We focus on... <laughs> I had to. I had to. It was too easy. She said earlier I need to do my, clothes, my shoes. Don't look at them. We focus on the next best thing to buy, don't we? The next best car. The iPhone 15 is probably coming out next week, and I'm going to need one. I mean, we're always looking ahead to what is next. We're never happy with right here, right now. They probably have new glasses, I bet. But we, um, when somebody upsets us or they no longer fulfill our happiness, what do we do? We walk away. Pastor Farrell just talked about it. Last week, during Valentine's, talk about how people just so easily just, I'm done with you, let me go find another one. I mean, we just throw stuff in the trash and we go buy another one. Our souls are rarely settled as our lives are planned, priced out, and seeking perfection. And the sad thing about it is, we don't even notice the aching question behind our search for the next best thing. We desire fulfillment. We desire rest. We desire joy that cannot be found in another person, a place, or another project. We often don't see the satisfaction that we so desire that can only be filled by a Messiah who speaks in spirit and in truth. And now we're going to... That was just opening, man. Y'all are... So let me, let me be real with y'all. Pastor Farrell said we had like two hours, so I figure an hour and 45, that way we can still get out early, right? You good with that, Mr. David? My man. My man. All right, so today, this morning, we're going to be talking out of, we're going to be reading out of John 4, verses 1 through 30. And like I said, there's a lot. I mean, he said two hours, so I'm going to take my two hours. Might not ever come back again. Who knows? Y'all might not want me back, so I better get what I got. So, the Samaritan woman in John 4, verses 1 through 30, reveal this truth about us. That we are blind to our own needs until the appointed one opens our eyes. Until he opens our eyes, we ain't got a clue of what we need, do we? 
The story of Jesus and this woman at the well is very, very familiar. To me it is. To you it may not. So I'm going to break it down for you. And as I've studied it this week, I've been struck by how simple and profound it is. I mean, here it is. A man meets a woman in a seemingly chance encounter. And in just a few brief moments, her life is absolutely changed forever. Current day, it wouldn't really have went down like this because we don't have to deal with the stuff like they had to deal back then. But back then, there was lessons here about racial prejudice. We probably still deal with that, don't we? Religious hatred. Yeah, we probably hit a little bit of that. And dealing with moral outcasts. And this story also conveys this valuable truth on how we should evangelize, how we should reach other people for Jesus, how we should be disciples as he has called us to be. So, let's set this scene. Let's set it. It was a hot day and the sun beat down on the man's head. The sweat poured off his brow as he walked along the dusty road. And it was probably mid to late July. So, could have been going to the tent a bit, I don't know. The temperature easily topped out at 105 degrees. And to make matters worse, he had been traveling all day since sunrise with his friends. Now, side note, could you imagine walking with your friends in 110 degree weather for seven hours across the desert with no water? Man, I don't want to ride with my daughter across the street some days. I sure don't want to walk across the desert with them. So, they were hurrying to make their way through this part of country as quickly as they could. They fi Jesus finally comes up to a well with a rock ledge built up above the ground in typical manner of the Middle East at that time. He sat on the lip and thought to himself, Oh, if only I could have a drink of water. And at precisely that moment, the woman came along. It wasn't the normal time. And it was unusual for a woman to come to the well alone. But this woman was different. This woman was different. The Bible says that she came from a tiny little village called Sychar. And we know Sychar was in Samaritan territory. It was in Samaria. Um, nestled between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Sychar was built at the confluence of two trade routes. So you kind of had to pass through. It was kind of like going through Princeton back in the day. Um, one came from Jerusalem on its way to Capernaum. And one that came west from the Jericho region toward the Mediterranean Sea. Sychar was thus located at a very strategic point in central Palestine. The well was about a half a mile outside the village near the point where the two trade routes came together. It was called Jacob's Well after the patriarch that had dug it 2,000 years prior in the Old Testament. Y'all remember Jacob? He had that nice coat. Weary travelers from throughout Israel knew it as a place where they might drink from the spring flowing some 150 feet below the surface. As the woman looks at Jesus and he looks at her, four invisible walls stand between them. First of all, you've got a religious wall, you've got a gender wall, you've got a racial wall, and finally you've got a moral, a moral wall. But yet, the Lord found a way through all them. He found her, and she also found him. So my first point I want to go into today about all this is contact. 
And this is going to be verses 1 through 8. John says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, even though Jesus himself didn't baptize, his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, which was near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here it is, just Jesus hanging out, waiting on this woman to get here. She comes. His disciples are gone. They went to get food. These jokers are hungry, and they're looking for a Hardee's, right? I mean, they're hungry. We need to eat. It's been a long day. They're hungry. They're looking to harvest. But Jesus ain't looking to harvest. Or I mean, Jesus ain't looking to Hardee's, is he? Jesus is looking to harvest. The boys are going to get burgers. But Jesus is waiting, waiting for the breakthrough that's getting ready to happen, isn't he? It's all God-divine appointment. He knows what's getting ready to happen. So in this story, in Jesus' day, geography played a big part of this story. Because in his day, there were three regions stacked on top of one another. There was Galilee, Samaria, and then Judea. So if you think about South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia... The quickest and easiest route, obviously, to go from the bottom to the top is straight up. Just hit 95, go straight there. You'll be there in no time. Um, but verse 3, go north, right through Samaria. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. So my question to you guys this morning is, Jesus needed to go through Samaria, right? I feel like, and I may be in left field here, but I feel like we all have a Samaria that Jesus needs to go to, don't we? We all have some area that we need Jesus to come into, that we need him to intervene in, don't we? Whether it's somebody sick, maybe you've got a lost child, maybe you're just struggling financially, we've all got something we need a touch of Jesus in, don't we? Every one of us. So, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Why did he need to do that? Because he really didn't have to. He could have took the other route. Just like Goldsboro's got a new bypass, you don't have to go down through 70 now, do you? you skirt right on around that joker. And that's what the PS Jews would do. They would go up and they would head east. They would cross the Jordan enter the region of Perea, go north, recross the river, and they would loop around. So, kind of like my mom used to tell me, why'd you go around your elbow to get to your thumb, right? I mean, it's just a long way around. But see, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. It all went back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered Israel and took the northern ten tribes into captivity. They brought in Gentiles from other areas to settle in that same region. And eventually those Gentiles with their pagan ways started intermarrying and kind of infiltrating what was already there with the Jews that had been left behind. So over generations, those people were called the Samaritans. They developed their own, relation, their own religion 
And that was partly based on pagan ideas and partly based on Judaism. I mean, it was just a big intertwined, you know, just all kinds of stuff. Eventually, they built their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim, and they developed their own language and their own version of the Old Testament. It was only the first five books, which is called the Pentateuch. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans as religious and racial half-bred heretics. And it's kind of hard for us to understand, but not really, because if you think about all the conflict and stuff that goes over in that part of the world now, I mean, it's kind of easy to see it back then, right? You know, with all the wars and all that. So, let's go back to verse 3. Why did Jesus say he needed to go through Samaria when the Jews either didn't go through there at all or they passed through as quickly as possible? The, ample, the answer is simple, and yet it's kind of profound. Jesus went because he intended to meet this woman, and that's what he's going to do with you. He is going to meet you wherever it is you're at and wherever it is that you need him to be. But you've got to open that door. You've got to let him in. The answer is simple. He knew that she would be coming to the well at precisely the moment he was sitting there weary from his journey. Nothing happens by chance in this story, and nothing is happening in your story by chance. Get that, take that home with you, do whatever you need to do with that. Put it on your refrigerator. Every detail is part of the outworking of God's will, and that is the hugely important part of this whole story. You don't... I'll, the woman... The woman wasn't looking for Jesus. What was she... What did the woman want? She just wanted water. She just wanted... I don't even know who this is, but it's mine now. She just wanted some water, right? And Jesus is looking for her. So the thing about it is, if you want to reach the Samaritans, you've got to go to Samaria. We've got to go to them deep, hard, ugly places that nobody else is going to go to reach the Samaritans. He didn't avoid Samaria, and he didn't hurry through it. Though she does not know it, this woman had a divine appointment with the Son of God. And from that, we can take a very important point for evangelism. Reaching people for Christ is not always comfortable, and it's probably going to get difficult from time to time. But you have to go to where the people are if you want to reach them. Uh, Brother Allen was up here Wednesday night. I saw him thanks to your Facebook feed. He was talking about firefighting techniques, correct? Is anybody else, did anybody else see this? I know I want to. I mean, I was alone at my house, but I know I want alone alone. Anyway, he was talking about firefighting. So it's just like firefighting. Alan can't go, Alan, Alan goes into the house to pull those out of that burning house, right? Could y'all imagine if you rode up on it and the house is on fire and Alan was standing there in the front yard? Hey, your house is on fire! You better get out! He can't do that. He can't do that. He can't stand outside and say that. And that's just what Jesus is doing here. Jesus intended to save this woman, so he went to where she was. She came along to the well at noontime. That was probably dangerous, and that was very unusual. Women normally come to together to the well in the morning or the evening. 
You know, it's kind of like Mary Catherine, my wife, and her friends, they'll go to Starbucks and they'll go to her Target. Or her and Ella Roseville, because that's their errands for the day. It was a social event. And the fact that that woman went along meant that her checkered past was probably well known to the villagers. Perhaps, maybe, she had even been ostracized by the other women of Sychar. The conversation began with a simple statement from Jesus. Give me a drink. He is tired and thirsty, and she had the water that he needed. But, he has the water that she needs. He was thirsty, and he knew it. But she was thirsty, and she didn't have a clue, did she? The woman did not come to the well seeking Christ, but he came to the well seeking her. And in his approach, we see the great heart of our Lord Jesus right there without prejudice. It, didn't ma- it don't matter to him what others would not go to Samaria and that others would not speak to this woman. He welcomes everybody and he doesn't shun anyone. Every single one of us, even a dirty sinner like myself. Every single None of us are better than the other. Luke 19.10 goes on to tell us that the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And this story tells us what that means. John 4 is all about sovereign grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a sinner like who? Every single one of us. He found her. She did not find him. And the same is true for every single one of us. You will never come to Christ until Christ first comes to you. What happens in this chapter looks like a chance encounter, but it was nothing of the kind. The time and the place and all the circumstances had already been arranged by God. So that brings me to my second point, the challenge. Yeah, see, that one only took 37 minutes, so we're good, y'all. We'll be done in two hours. Second challenge, verses 9 through 15. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where, do you, where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? As well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw again. That was John 4, 9 through 15. So, this is a triple surprise in this verse. There's three of them. Number one, and she said all this, number one, that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan was not happening back then. Number two, a man speaking to a woman that he didn't know in public was not happening back then. And thirdly, a Jew drinking from a Samaritan's cup 
was not happening then. So it's like this. When the woman saw Jesus, she knew he was a Jew by his dress and probably also by his accent. I mean, it's like when we went to New York, man, them jokers knew I want from New York. All I got to do is open my mouth and you can tell I'm half-breed Wayne County and Johnston County. <laughs> when the woman saw Jesus, she knew he was a Jew by his dress and probably also his accent. That's your boy. She knew he was a stranger just passing through. In the first century, it was almost unheard of for a man to speak to a woman in public in those circumstances. And then to ask for a drink of water was even more unusual. Since the rabbis taught that it was a sin to touch a utensil that a Samaritan had touched. It was unclean. When Jesus offered her living water, he is being deliberately ambiguously. Long words. Because the phrase could also mean running water. He is trying to incite her curiosity without seeming suspicious. You come here for water. I've got water you've never dreamed of before. He is leading her step by step to saving faith. And this girl ain't got not a clue. He ain't got, she ain't got an idea. First he leads her to see her need. Then he shows her who he is. And then he offers her something that could change her life. He is offering not to quench her thirst, but to banish it once and for all. That is what's called a teachable moment. And I'm struck by the fact that Jesus returns again and again and again and again to the same issue. Just like he does with each, one, each and every one of us. Do you know who I am? If you knew my true identity... You could ask, and I would give you water that leads to eternal life. And not just a drink of water, but a gushing spring that will well up within your heart. And it's here we see the simplicity of salvation. In verse 10, Jesus said, You would have asked, and I would have given you living water. That's all salvation is right there, guys. That's it. That's all there is. Salvation is asking God to save you. And receiving salvation in return. Amen. Just that simple. Think about that. Heaven itself is yours for the asking. The only thing we got to do is ask. That's it. Just ask Jesus with a humble heart to save you. And salvation is right there. So then, there's a reminder of the vanity of all the earthly things in this. Anyone who drinks of the water of this world will thirst again. We all know what it is to be thirsty, and we know that the body can live for weeks without food. But only a few days without water. So I'm sure I probably look like I might be one of the Hatcher family because of my height. But I am not by any means in my vocal singing. So I'm on, I got, there's a verse, there's a song that's called Fill My Cup, Lord. I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'm going to tell you what it says. We get, Y'all good with that? It goes, like the woman at the well I was seeking for things I could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from a well that shall never run dry. The chorus goes on and says, fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench the thirsting of my soul. 
Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. In verse 15, the woman even says, Sir, give me this water. She didn't have a clue of what she was asking for. But she knew that she wanted what he had. Point three out of 39. Verses 16 through 18. I'm a terrible liar. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I, 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 have, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So on one level, we kind of feel like Jesus might be being insensitive here, don't we? Go call your husband. You know, he's just kind of rubbing that sandpaper a little bit. Why is he even bringing up anything on her past? Is he trying to embarrass her? And the answer here is no. His instruction to call her husband made her very uncomfortable. We all know about guilt and shame, don't we? Or am I? Okay, well, guilt and shame is terrible since y'all don't know. I'm just telling you, guilt and shame is bad. And that's what she's dealing with here. His instruction to call her a husband made her very uncomfortable. She doesn't want to go into detail, so she simply says, I have no husband. And that was true, but it wasn't exactly the whole story, was it? She knew she was hiding the truth, but what she doesn't know, Jesus already knows, don't he? He knows that dirt in your life before you even did it. And so he proceeds to reveal the rest of the story. The woman has had five husbands. And the man that she is living with currently is not her husband. So in a sense, that's really the ultimate reality check. I mean, how many people do we know that have had five husbands and Pamela Anderson don't count? I mean, I don't know anybody that has had that many. Um, today, that would be very, very unusual. And then that begs the answer, you know, what happened to your five husbands? Did they die? Probably not all five of them. If they did, you were collecting some insurance money. <laughs> Has she been divorced five times? Probably so. And if there's five of them and one of her, where is the problem at here? So then that makes you wonder, was it promiscuity? Probably so. Because she is currently living in a sinful relationship with a man outside of marriage. The words here from Jesus are a verbal slap in the face, but, but, it's the most loving thing that he could have done for her. There is an important spiritual principle here at work. Without the conviction of sin, there cannot be no conversion. God sees behind this mask to the reality within. He don't look at our stature here. He looks at our heart. He knows what's going on inside there. And until we come to grips with the sickness of our sin and our own willful disobedience to God, we cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. It's not going to happen. Go fish. Is Jesus being cruel? No more than the doctor who prescribed surgery to save your life. Unless he removes that tumor, you are certainly going to die. Will the operation be painful? Of course it will. But when you weigh that against the death 
I mean, the pain is just part of the healing process, isn't it? You've got to let that scab grow. You've got to let that wound heal before it's gone. In another place, Jesus described his mission as this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've, called, I've come to save the sick. The sinners, the Samaritans, the Batwoods Johnson County people, the people right across the street and Pine Level. However you want to look at it, that's who he came to save. That was Mark 2.17. So just as a doctor must sometimes seem to hurt in order to heal, the great physician of the soul must wound us with the truth about ourselves in order to heal the sickness of our By asking about her husband, he exposes this woman's lifelong pursuit of happiness. Evidently, she has entered one failed relationship after another after another. And each time, there is no doubt that she says, This is the man. This time, I'll be happy. And each time, she was disappointed again. Now, she won't even risk marriage. But the words of Jesus reveal a deep-seated loneliness, a hole in her heart that no man other than Jesus could feel. Far from being irrelevant, these words of Jesus go to the core of our problem. And if we're being honest, it goes to the core of our problems too. We've been raised to believe that if you only find the right man or the right woman, you'll be happy. So we jump from one relationship to another. Or we take a quick trip down to Temptation Island, desperately hoping against hope that this time, this time things are going to be different. This time we'll make it. This time we'll be happy. Yet no human relationships can satisfy our needs. We are spiritual beings made for a relationship with God. Like I said, there's a God-shaped hole inside our human hearts that no man or woman can ever fill. We are made to know God, and until we know him through Jesus Christ, we are doomed to restlessness and despair. We'll never, be joy. We'll never have that joy Jesus gives us. We'll never have it. We'll chase after one, after another, after another. So, I have a question for you guys at this point. I've got to buy some time. I'm running like three minutes ahead, and I, like I said, we've got two hours. Does Jesus love this woman? Obviously he does. Yes, he does. He knows the truth, and he still offers her eternal life. And this is the wonder of God's grace. Only someone who loves you can look at your past without blinking at you. Real love means knowing the truth about someone else and reaching out to them anyway. He's not ashamed of her past, but he cannot help her until she gets beyond the shame and admits the actual truth. And at this point, she is almost there, y'all. She is like, uh, almost there. But she ain't quite saved. She is near the kingdom, but she ain't opened up that door yet. <coughs> Jesus has laid bare what she thought she could keep hidden. And that makes, that always makes sinners uncomfortable. That always makes me uncomfortable. That probably should always make you uncomfortable. She wants to change the subject, and that's what she does. So now we're going to go into conversion. Point four of 93. Verses 19 through 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is come when you will neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, spirit and truth. Excuse me. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. So it's now clear to this woman that she has met the most unusual man she has ever met. Because he knows her past, she thinks he must be a prophet. Since he is a Jew and she's a Samaritan, she begins to engage in a theological debate. You see, in that day, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. So she wants to know which mountain is the way that she needs to go. Which one? And Jesus don't bother debating that with her because it don't really make sense now. He simply tells her that a time is coming when geography is not going to matter. You don't have to worship there. You don't have to worship there. What God wants are people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And he doesn't condemn her faulty th theology or say, you're crazy for going to worship there. That wouldn't do any good. And truthfully, it would probably make her angry and end the whole conversation, wouldn't it? She would shut him off right there at the door, slam the door. Bam, got my face. Um, but one of the great truths to come out of this story is that God is greater than geography. He's greater than race class, sex, and even religious traditions. True worship is not about where or how or even when. It's about who you are, who we are, and who God is. He wants us to worship Him, and He wants that worship based on truth and wholehearted personal commitment to Him. You see, the worship God accepts must be based on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it also must be offered to Him with a humble heart. But there's equally good news in that statement. If what God wants is spirit and truth, that means anybody can qualify for it. Salvation is not just limited to the Jews. The good news is meant for every single person on this planet. This is God's equal access provision. Salvation is not about going to the right mountain. It's about going to Jesus for salvation. Anyone can do that, anywhere, at any time. So here, slowly the truth is dawning on this woman. She's slowly, like the light bulb's dim, but it's, it's getting there, right? She has heard that the Messiah will someday come to earth, and imagine to her surprise when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. That's an amazing, amazing statement from our Lord. Here he plainly claims to be the Messiah, and he does this in a unique way. I really like the way the Greek puts it. It reads something like this. The one who speaks to you, I am. But here, I am was the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus uh, 3.15. Jesus is claiming identity with God. And no doubt this woman was absolutely blown away. She came for water in the middle of the day, 
And she ends up meeting the water of life face to face. How often has that happened to us and we didn't know it? So now on to point five. This is verses 27 through 30. This is a changed life. We've got 103 more to go. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he taught with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you see or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I've ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and they came to him. So somewhere between verses 26 through 27, this woman has been converted, hasn't she? How do we know? She leaves her water pot, and then what does she do? She goes to town and tells her folks. And it strikes me by how little this woman actually understands. All she tells them is, he knows me. I know that's not the Apostles' Creed. And then she says, I think he is the Messiah. And that's definitely not part of the four spiritual laws. Matter of fact, she's not a very good witness at all, is she? But, I mean, we would probably want her trained a little bit better. But God uses those who are willing to be used. You see her invitation to the people of Sychar? She don't run out there and say, you've got to be born again. She's a little bit gentler than that. She goes out there and she says, come and see. Come and see. Just come with me. And that's what Philip said to Nathaniel in John 1, 46. No threats, no promises. Just come and see for yourself. Her invitation is sincere. It's non-threatening and it's open to everyone. When Jesus gives you living water, you want to share it with someone else. Y'all, I got good news for y'all. You ain't got but two more pages. The plane is landing. Now, if y'all know Pastor Farrell Hardison the way I do, you also know that that don't really mean jack, does it? It don't mean a thing. So here we are. Knocking things over. Um, point six. This is the choice. John 4, 27 through 30. So we come to the end of the story in verses 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, but we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. It's a wonderful lesson in the power of the gospel. One woman with a little teeny bit of knowledge, just a little mustard seed of faith, has brought her whole town to Jesus. That's big. That is evangelism explosion. And that's what each and every one of us needs. She never attended a class. She never read a book. She met Jesus and he transformed her entire life. That is my story. And I know that's a couple of your stories. 
We met Jesus and our complete future has been changed from here at that point on. Sometimes we wonder how little a person can believe and still be saved. Or we even ask, how much do you have to understand in order to go to heaven? Right here from looking at this story, the answer is not very much. And then we wonder, how much can a person be wrong about and still be saved? Well, the question, I think the answer is pretty simple. As long as you're solid on two things. Number one, you know you're a sinner. It's pretty straightforward, right? And number two, you know that Jesus is the Savior you need. If you know you're a sinner and you know you're willing to trust Christ as your Savior, you can be saved. And there is plenty of time in the middle to fill them gaps out. Um, a little phrase at the end of verse 2 tells us that the hated Samaritans figured out something that the Jews never got right. They understood that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. They heard this woman's testimony, then they heard Jesus, then they believed in him. I hear a testimony, I hear of Jesus then they believe. That's that easy. You aren't going to go to heaven because your mama was a godly woman. You're not going to go to heaven because your daddy was a missionary. You have to make that decision on your own. Each and every single one of us. If my daughter don't make that decision, she is not going to heaven. Praise the Lord, she has made that decision. But we can't live off of our ancestors' faith. My mama could have built the church across the road, but that don't mean that I'm going to heaven. We have to make that decision. We've got to step forward and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. He is my Lord and he is my Savior. And that leads me back to a crucial phase in verse 10. Phrase, not phase. If you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want you to ponder those three words. If you knew. If you knew who I was, you would ask. I would give you eternal life. So my question to you guys this morning is, do you know who he is? If so, will you ask him for the living water that only he can provide? If you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is ask. That's how simple it is. It's like asking for a refreshing drink of somebody else's cool, clear water. So I'm going to summarize this real quickly. Um, some things we've learned from this. None of us are too sinful to be saved. I don't give a rip what you've done. You can be saved. None of us are so lost that the Lord cannot find them. He's everywhere. He's right there with you. You don't have to say, Lord, be with me. He is there with you in the midst of your mess. None of us can be saved without facing our sinful past. None of us who face our sinful past will be turned away from Jesus. It ain't too dirty for him. And none of us who meet Jesus will ever be the same again. So, as we, as we land this plane for real, that was the last, actually, one. Sorry. 
for the disappointment of 113. How many of us are in our own Samaria right now this morning? How many of us have some area that we need Jesus to move in? And how many of us are in some area that we never expected us to be in? I think the craziest thing we can ever do is think that that would never happen to me. I've done it. It happened to me. Here we are. So I'm, I'm going to close and I'm going to pray. Um, if you haven't made Jesus, if you, if you don't know who he is, I urge you to do that today. Maybe you have gotten far away from him and you think that he doesn't know who you are. Well, I assure you he does. And I assure you he is standing there just like this. He is waiting to fill you up with his water. All you've got to do is ask. Let's bow our heads. Let's go to prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this message this morning, Lord. And I pray, Lord, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you help us to be evangelists, just like Jesus was in this message, Lord. Help us to go to Samaria or those areas, some areas where the lost are at, those that need you, Lord. Help us to go there and just say, hey, here's what he did for me. That's all we need to do, Lord, is just tell them what you did for us. Lord, if there is anybody here this morning, Lord, that don't know you, that have not experienced your drink of water, Lord, I pray that they'll do that. And I feel like I've laid it out very easily. The only thing they have to do is recognize that they're a sinner and recognize that they need you. And they can ask you that right there where they're at. Maybe they're far from you. Lord, just welcome them back. I just ask that they have the boldness, Lord, to come back to you. With your arms wide open, waiting on them to come back. Lord, we lift up Pastor Farrell to you this morning. We pray that with his gallbladder and whatever else that he's got going on, Lord, that you lay your healing touch on him this morning. And Lord, be with that family of um, that precious lady that's gone to be with you. Lord, keep them um, in our thoughts, Lord. Just help us to love on them. And Lord, I pray that they experience your love from where, you're at, from where they are. Thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the honor of being somewhere where I feel like I might even, I'm at home. Um, I just thank you for them, and I just thank you for all that you're doing, not only in the world, but right here in Pine Level Pentecostal Holiness Church, Lord, because we truly believe that greater things are ahead. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. The altars are open. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I guess here, I, I don't know. I guess we're going. I guess I, I, we're done. I don't know where Brother Mac was at. I was going to ask him, but I guess he's going. Y'all have a great Sunday. Uh, thank you for coming out. Pine Little Pentecostal Church Incorporated, copyright 2020.
three.